All the road and go. Where am I to go, me Johnny? Where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go? Hello, and welcome to Where Am I to Go podcast. Today we are in Mountaineer, New Mexico. Mountaineer is a smaller town, kind of what, probably 35, 45 miles from uh, Albuquerque? Yeah, about an hour or so drive. About an hour or so drive from Albuquerque, kind of to the southeast. And we are talking with Alex, who is in charge of a series of ruins down here that date back to the 1600s. Some of them date back to the 1300s. I have always said that Aztec ruins in New Mexico are my absolute favorite. That has just been surpassed by these sets of ruins. There is uh, three different sites. I've had the opportunity to look at each of these sites before we talked with Alex. The wind has been horrendous here, so we are in a conference room. And uh, we're going to talk, and I'm going to have to go off of memory. One disclaimer real quick is there are three different ruin sites. And each of them have their own name. And as most of you know that listen to this podcast on a regular basis, I can't remember names for beans. So we are going to have to have Alex correct me probably a thousand times. Get used to it for this podcast. <laughs> Welcome to Where Am I to Go podcast, Alex. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And uh, when I heard you wanted to do this, I thought it was just the perfect opportunity to get uh, to get the park out there and to get our name out there too. Um, because it's quite a special place that uh, usually isn't on the uh, people's radar that it's even here. Um, Had it not been for my sister-in-law saying, there's this really cool place you need to go to, I would not have known it was here. Uh, you've got a lot of ruins in the state that are very popular. Gila, uh, Chaco Canyon, Aztec. Uh, I don't know. There's, they're all over the place here in New Mexico. Uh, Coronado, uh, we, we stayed at a campground uh, by Coronado, which is just outside of uh, Albuquerque and Bernalillo. Mm -hmm. uh, neat set of ruins there also. But I had not heard anything about these, and these ones here are probably the most spectacular of any of the ruins I've seen in Utah, Colorado, uh, Lots of different places, Arizona, lots yeah. of places I've traveled, the ruins are not as well preserved and as accessible as they are here. Yeah. And if, if you want, I'll give you a brief little background on, on the park. And uh, as, as he mentioned, my, my name's Alex Arnold. I'm an interpretive park guide here. Um, we, we preserve some special sites and we uh, tell the story of basically a, a blending of cultures here. Uh, not only are we in central New Mexico, right in the heart of the state, right in the heart of New Mexico, um, that's a diverse melting pot of cultures today. It was all the way throughout the uh, throughout the centuries, dating as far back as around 800 in this er area. So we uh, we do have uh, three ruined sites and four park units here. Um, so we do have you're in our headquarters visitor center right now, right. Um, and then of course we also have uh, the Abo ruins. Um, which... I can remember that one because that's spelled A-B-O. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's the easiest. That's the easiest one to remember. Um, and uh, that one's our oldest site, we think, as far as inhabitation as well as the mission ruins uh, oh, really? and the mission being there. Um, and then, of course, uh, we have our southern unit, which is the most remote out of the, out of the three, Gran Quivira. 
Um, and then we also have Quarai, which is our northern unit, and that was the, the smallest uh, inhabitation site, uh, with Grand Quivira being the biggest out of all of them. And in this podcast, I might just refer to Grand Quivira as Grand. Mm-hmm. Or, or you could just call it GQ. GQ. That's, that's what the staff calls it here, and sometimes we'll slip it out with the public, and they're like, What's GQ? And we're like, oh, 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 yeah, Grand Quivira. Yeah. Okay, we'll, yeah. we'll remember that. And that's the southernmost one. We yes. went and visited that one on Saturday, I think. Okay. And what a phenomenal place. What a phenomenal place. Mm-hmm. A t-shirt. There you go. She bought a t-shirt at the, at the visitor center. I, I guess if I get confused, I can just look, just look a little shirt. bit below her neck and, and come that's, up with the words. That's right. <laughs> cheat sheet. I like looking above a little bit below her neck anyway. <laughs> Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> okay, and then the north site was called what? Quarai, uh, and that that one is is um, between Quarai and Abo. Those are the two most visited units of the park. Quarai um, is very accessible to, to folks that live in Albuquerque. Um, it's roughly forty five to fifty minutes away from the east side of Albuquerque, just down three thirty seven through Tijeras Canyon. Um, and then hopping on 55 south there, and it'll take you right to Quarai. It's actually, uh, it's the most complete mission ruins that you'll see out of all the site. The church is, is more complete than any of the other churches. Definitely. Um, yes. Which And the courtyard, and, and I mean, yes. you, you get a very good visual. You've got a placard there in front mm-hmm. that uh, has the outlay of what the artist's thinks that it probably looked like. Yes. And as you're looking at that, you can definitely see the outlines of all the different foundations. And there's still three stories of, of rocks piled up. But that's the case with all three of your facilities is they're all uh, so visible. You pull in and you see an old uh, mission-type church that's three stories, four stories high. A lot of the bricks are still intact, or not bricks, but the rocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just amazing. And then you can walk through the maze. Mm-hmm. The first time you, you go, um, in my experience, I, I, I experienced so many different emotions at the different sites. Agreed. Like the first time I went to Quarai, I felt overwhelmed and encapsulated when I walked into the nave of the church because the walls were so high. And there was that subtle glow of red coming from the red sandstone and the sun. And that, that was special. And what I can remember the first time at Gran Quivira was the amazing view. You know, you're at the high point there and you're looking right. down, down into the valley. Um, you know, you're just off the, uh, the slopes of the Chupadera Mesa there. Um, so you get that beautiful pinyon and, and juniper country there. And then at Abo, I could just remember cresting the hill and seeing the majestic Manzano Mountains in the background and them being in the background of the mission. Um, was just a powerful experience for me. And I think most visitors share that same view. Um, but that's, that's the, they're powerful places that incite so many different emotions, especially initial emotions with people. And each one of them has, like you were saying, their, their own particular feel. But like when you go to uh, GQ, you have rocks that are more of a grayish, whitish tone. Mm-hmm. And it's really impressive. And then you get to a bow, and they are dark red with a few little white rocks interspersed in the walls. And then the same thing with uh, the north one. Yeah, Quarai. Yes, yes. We're going to do repetition, is that's what it's going to be. Um, but no, that brings up an excellent point, uh, and that's where some of the 
uh, that's where I love when you can make connections between the cultural resources and the natural resources. So, right. you know, culturally, um, all people that lived in the area, both Pueblo and, and, and uh, Franciscans, as well as resettlement era folks, they all utilized what was readily available the closest to them. So at Grand Quivira, if you look around, you'll see exposed rock, and it's all that gray limestone. It's part of the San Andres uh, formation. And when you go to a bow in Quarai, especially if you drive Route 60 through a bow, you just see exposed red sandstone all throughout a bow pass. And uh, that's an older layer of, of red sandstone there. That limestone, it, it, it used to be on top. Um, but in that area, it had eroded away over years and years and left that sandstone exposed, whereas at Grand Quivira, that, that layer is still there and, and exposed and readily available and easily quarried is, is the main point. Well, and the quarries weren't that far. I, when we first got to a bow, I was walking around looking and I'm going, there's no rocks. This is all just red soil. Mm -hmm. There are no rocks, but then as you come around the walk, the walking path, it's about a half mile walk. Well worth the walk to go around the backside because yeah. you can see where the the creek came mm -hmm. down through there, mm -hmm. and then you get a little bit further down and you can see where the sh where the sh shale layers are that they were quarrying their rocks from, and it's just amazing. I I'm also assuming as that creek came down, they probably at one point in time must have had a couple of dams across there to capture the water and put it into pools to where they were able to irrigate maybe a little bit or, or at least have water for the for the mission. Yes, and uh, so, you know, there, uh, we're referencing there the arroyo that runs at Abo. And uh, Abo is a special place because you have a couple different springs and arroyos that meet in one place. Um, okay. So from the trail, you can't see the spring source. Not at all. Um, but there is a spring source that generally has water in it all year, no matter the, the dry conditions. It's a, it's a groundwater table. Um, so you have the bisection, the intersection or confluence of East Creek and Espinosa Creek. Um, so you were looking at Espinosa Creek there. And uh, an arroyo in, is basically a, a word in, uh, that, that means a stream or a, a creek. But okay. what's interesting, about, or you may hear wash used interchangeably. Right. Uh, Northern New Mexico uses washes. I don't know why, but I've seen uh, at Chaco and other places, they refer to them as washes. I would imagine um, that because when it rains, it washes everything. Yes. And, that's, and that's the distinguishing factor is, um, you know, folks from different areas of the country may... Uh, think that you know water should be in it all the time, but arroyos. That's what's interesting about them. They only run when it rains. Um, so when you see a rain cell, not not only at a bow, but when it's raining in the Manzano Mountains, because that's the ultimate source of that arroyo, the water will rush through that arroyo and in fact make that road impassable. You know we have to um, you know close the site off when um, that. Arroyo is running because you, you can be trapped on the other side of that arroyo it washes the road out So it does come rushing down there and uh, there is one area in there that um, Has been identified as a, a very likely a, a dam site that was uh, Actually carved out by the uh, Pueblo people that lived there which were the of the Tompiro language group and uh, The thought behind that is you know when the water runs it'll recede pretty quickly, you know, right. pretty quickly after it quits raining. Um, so the idea behind that is to capture some of that 
and leave it behind so that they could store it and utilize it. So if you look at it though, at one point, um, you'll see that the rock from, you know, from the stream, from the arroyo appears to have been cut and carved. Uh -huh. And then there's a deep hole right below it. And, you know, the archeology span shows that there most likely was a catch basin for water um, that the Pueblo people had there. Um, so then that would help supplement any sort of water issues. You know, the, 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 uh, spring source is, is pretty, pretty well, pretty big there. Um, but that was a village of about 1400 people at its peak. Um, you need all the water that you could get, especially in an arid environment like the high desert is here. Right, right. Um, and they also had a very sustainable farming system at Abo. Um, and the evidence that it was more successful than some any other of the areas around here that they had enough that they were able to um, trade and even supply in lean times to other pueblos and missions in the area that others could not. Um, so that's that's what's special about a bow. Now another thing that I understand, if I understand it correctly, is that a big trade item out of all of this area was salt. Correct. And they have a few salt beds that you can see as you're coming in from Encino, mm -hmm. uh, like from Vaughn Encino and coming on across, you can see several salt beds. How pure was that salt? When you drive by it, it looks really dirty and like it wouldn't, I, I wouldn't want it sitting on my table and pouring it on my yeah. eggs. But at the same time, if you dig down a little bit, does it become pure salt or? Yeah. So to my, and I'm no expert on this, but some of the studies I've read on it is that um, there's a few different types of salt that's within the beds of that lake. Okay. Um, and it's of different quality. Um, apparently there, there was or is salt that could be utilized as table salt in there. But the main type of salt was the type that they would utilize for um, the Spanish's uh, we discussed a little bit before the podcast would use it in, in the smelting process or amalgamation, um, oh. a way that they could extract silver um, from copper in a salt solution. So it was mainly an industrial type salt. And then the other type of salt that I read about that could come out of there is is comparable to road salt. Okay. Um, now the Pueblo people had utilized this uh, one type of that salt in, in meat preservation. Uh, for for centuries, so um, there's multiple different types of salt that you could get, and and it still you know still has uh, still produces and still has salt to this day. Um, now that is on uh, private land today, so I, I'm not sure about the actual if people if people actually still harvest salt out of there. Um, but you could see them from an airplane. So if you keep your eyes peeled and you're, you're leaving from the uh, Albuquerque Sunport uh -huh. and you're heading back east. Um, that's one of the main flight paths that they'll fly. Um, I've seen it a few times after visiting folks back home on the east, east, eastern side of the United States. I've, I said, oh, yeah, there's Mount Nair. There's the Salt Lakes. Huh. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I just it, it just kind of intrigued me, the whole salt thing. But salt is such a vital uh, mineral to life. I mean, and the, and the uses of it are so diverse, especially back in the day when, when preserving meat, preserving hides, and all of that stuff was, was life. I mean, it was survival. It was what you had to do. And, and I would imagine that salt would be a major trade item. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, like I mentioned, it's not only what attracted people here, but it's what, it's what brought others here to trade. Um, there were, this was an area of, uh, 
immense cultural mixation that I was mentioning before. So you're seeing plains groups moving through here quite often uh, from the likes of the Umano people that usually range in the panhandle of West Texas, um, but would travel this way, especially if they were on pilgrimage hunts. Um, uh, they, they've been known to range even out into Arizona um, from time to time, or at least uh, evidence that they were out there from time to time. Um, and this is a, a thoroughfare, a bow pass, like we mentioned, uh, like I mentioned before, a bow. Um, people have been through there for centuries. There's even evidence that Ice Age hunters used a bow pass to get through. And it's naturally a thoroughfare for people. Um, today, US 60 runs on there, and also the BNSF Railroad runs through there, the Boleyn Cutoff. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you got the natural pass between the Pino Mountains and the Manzano Mountains. And then, you know, when you get past the Pinos, you run right into the um, Chupadera Mesa, um, which is looming in the background. So, which is also the same Mesa that Grand Kibera sits up the, the southeastern side of. So, um, it's just a natural pass for people. Um, and we've seen that for centuries. Okay. Another question or, or uh, uh, something I would like for you to explain is you've got a really wide time period here. You stated 800 mm -hmm. uh, year or 800, year 800 mm -hmm. and then on up through 1680 mm -hmm. was, was the main focus of, of this. And I'm assuming that people lived in each one of these areas, traded and all that from that whole time period. But the Spanish... Conquistadors or or whoever uh, Coronado and that group they didn't come into this area until when the fifteen hundreds yeah and and here we're a bit south of the initial explorations in um, you know the fifteen eighties and nineties um, okay the first uh, group to uh, of Spanish explorers that really spent time in this area was around sixteen hundred um, and they spent time more so around uh, a bow. Um, and Quarai than they did Gran Quivira, um, so they wouldn't have made it down uh, quite that far. Um, so, yeah, the, the Pueblo people, um, so year 800, we're talking more ancestral Pueblo people. Okay. Um, now, when you talk about Pueblo people, you're talking about people that build, uh, they build permanent structures. I'm assuming that they were ag agrarian in, in society. They built uh, multifamily structures that were kind of like a big mall, I guess, is the way to describe them. There were lots of little rooms. There were lots of storage areas for their corn and for their agricultural products that kept them through the year. Uh, they had kivas, which are round or square uh, holes in the ground that were covered for meeting houses and some of that type of stuff. Uh, but, the, but the Puebloan people... They, they lived as a, as a mass group from what I've been able to determine from other ruins and, and what I've seen here. But when the uh, missionaries or the Jesuits or whoever came in, they set up large churches with walled facilities. Now, were the Pueblos walled also, like to protect from other warring tribes or no and and there's there's been research that's been done on the different eras of buildings so you know in the 800s the evidence on uh, you know is not masonry style pueblos it's still that here it's a little bit later than some of the other uh, areas in the four corners uh, here in 800 we still see pit house structures that would have been built 
Um, now you're saying like dig a hole and then cover it with a yeah, thatched roof or something? Yeah, yeah. It, basically an earthen, earthen roof and then, uh, you know, juniper that's used as supports. Um, and uh, they were, you know, subterranean, basically underground a bit. Okay. Um, you, not usually not more than about six feet or so. Um, but um, but they were only five foot four tall. Yeah. Well, yeah, it depends. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that's what you're really seeing around here at that time. Okay. Um, and then as you move on, uh, you know, getting around a thousand. Um, 900 to 1,000, um, you'll see Hakal-style structures that are popping up in, in the Pueblos, which are, um, if you're familiar with eastern longhouses um, of the woodland people, um, back in the east coast, they're basically uh, rectangular-style single-block structures okay. um, that are made of, of uh, tied-together juniper and a, uh, basically a packed earth-style plaster for heat retention. Um you know, you see evidences of those foundations in the area. Um, and then you really see the first style of the masonry pueblos pop up uh, at a bow um, roughly around the late 1100s, early 1200s. Um, and that's your locally quarried red sandstone um, with, uh, with an adobe style plastering. And, and then there's some studies that say that there could have been a, a gypsum style plaster um, in the Pueblos, which is interesting. Um, there were gypsum deposits left behind when this, uh, from when the Estancia Basin used to be Lake Estancia. Um, so there was gypsum available uh, in the era. Um, the churches actually, Abo and Quarai, um, most likely had a white gypsum plaster as the exterior um, plastering. Really? Um, yeah, so you're seeing today, you're seeing that base layer right. of stone. Um, traditionally the Spanish churches, they had, uh, a layer of an adobe plaster and then a thin layer of a finishing white plaster. Mm -hmm. Now at Quarai and, and, uh, Abo, it most likely was gypsum. That's what mostly was found during the archeological studies was gypsum flakes at the bases of the walls. Gran Quivira most likely was lime. Uh, a lot of lime plaster was found there, which is your normal style of white plaster. Um, but the gypsum is unique. Um, and I was, uh, talking to one of the archeologists that did studies, uh, through a boat pass in the 1980s. Uh, they did larger scale studies back in the 1980s on different, different smaller Pueblo sites. And, and he's, I asked him about plastering and he said, they believe that a lot of the plaster was white gypsum, which is super unique. And if you've ever been to white sands national park, right, right. um, that's white gypsum sand. And you know there's that distinguishing sparkle to it when it's in the sun. Right. If you could just imagine those churches on a bright and sunny day, the sparkle and gleam that that had to give off. That would have been be, amazing. It had to be amazing. It's blinding when you go to White Sands. It is. Yes, it is. And imagine that on a, on a landscape that doesn't have that, you know, and just this white gleaming structure in the distance that you'd be able to see for miles is what people, that would, that's what people would see. Um, now, when we talk about the inner structures on these uh, churches that were constructed in the 1600s, you have walls that are two and a half, three foot thick almost. Now, of course, they go up three stories. I'm assuming that the reason that they're so wide is just for support, because if they were little narrow walls like what we see in our houses and stuff now, there would be no structural strength against wind or anything else. But I can't even imagine... 
what it looked like when you had people having to chip rocks at the quarry, mm -hmm. other people possibly hauling them. It had to have looked like an ant mound from oh, yeah. if you were looking at it from up above with hundreds of people or even thousands of people quarrying, carrying, and stacking all these, these rocks because there's I'm going to just throw a wild guess out there. There's 10 million rocks in each one of these facilities. Yeah. Easily 10 million. Yeah, and, and the, the, the Pueblo people, and that's one thing as you travel around New Mexico and see the different uh, Pueblos, um, they were immensely skilled builders. Right. Um, and they still are. The Pueblo societies are amazing builders. They're amazing masons. And um, they did things that... Uh, people that were living in other areas of this of this of this territory in this country had no idea how to do um and that's you know that's the important factor here of how would you be able to build large structures out of an area that you know franciscans and spanish folks you know that are coming from spain or from new spain and in, in mexico um have no idea how to do right um you know the the i always explain these pueblos as uh they were city centers um and you really get that feeling when you're at gran quivira gran quivira has is the only one of our sites that has, has excavated uh, pueblo uh mounds there. right right and uh when you're standing in there and and you see these pueblo foundations that are all around you and you, you just you kind of get taken back. There's a strong silence at Gran Quivira, and it's it's hard to explain. But sometimes in that silence, you could just hear the voices and the bustling and the the people that are they're creating, they're they're weaving, they're trading, they're they're going on hunts, they're doing, they're farming. You just get taken back to the societies of yesterday, and and it gives you an appreciation for the site that much more. Definitely. And and that is intriguing, you know, because you do have some of it dug out. And the thing that's cool, really, really cool, and the thing I've always liked about Aztec that I find so much more interesting here is it's more of an open site. You go to a place like Mesa Verde and you walk your half mile down and you get to see the cliff dwellings that everybody sees the pictures of. And it's it's absolutely phenomenal. And then they say, well, now uh, we've given our speech about how these people lived and stuff. You're standing in this one little area, and they say, now you can look around. And as soon as you take three steps off of the beaten path, it's, oh, no, don't go there. Oh, no, don't go there. And so you get the feeling that you just are supposed to stand and turn around in a circle to look around. Whereas these places, uh, and that's what I like so much about Aztec, and even even Hovenweep is, is somewhat like that. But... This place, you you can get in, you can walk through the facilities, and it's a maze. I, I I don't know how these Franciscans found their way around because it's it's nothing but a maze as you're walking through here, and all the walls are are well four foot to to sixty foot tall, and you're walking through this maze, and it's just amazing because of of the the ability to to hands on actually feel, look, touch, and experience some of what was going on there. And like you said, it takes your mind back to where you can almost hear what was happening 
and it, your imagination just goes wild. It's awesome. It does. And, and you know, there's a, there's a, a sound of silence. Uh, it could be a way to describe it at each one of the sites that uh, – now, weekends will get a little less quiet. But if you're there during a weekday um, and, it's, and sometimes you may be the only people at the site – it's it's amazing. Um, you know, we don't have many planes that fly above, especially at Grand Quivira. Um, in fact, in, in one of our research studies, it mentions that Grand Quivira is, uh, almost has a, a, an exact soundscape of the quietness that it would have during the 1600s and, and prior to, you know, minus the bustling of a city that right. was there. Um, so you can really just take time to reflect on what's there and focus, uh, focus your mind on the story. Um, so talk about not only is, is it an incredible story at each site, but you have a good medium or a good way to experience that. You have some quiet, some solitude, you have uh, wayside exhibits. And then if you're in the summertime, you, you might stumble upon one of our guided programs that, and, and then you get an even more in-depth look. I thought you were going to say rattlesnakes. And you could. <laughs> <laughs> Guided rattlesnake. <laughs> there are signs everywhere that say, please respect our rattlesnakes. Yes, yes, yes. When you, we were talking just before we started the podcast mm. that uh, you guys have all been trained how to go out and get the rattlesnakes off of the path. Yes, yeah, just in case because, you know, our main, our main goal, and I always describe it this way because it's the same deal. Um, if you're in Yellowstone and uh, a bison's on the road, you gen you don't move the bison if you you know you you, you stop traffic let the bison move on so that's oh you go up and pet it yes we, we, yes. we have we have a yeah. bison versus yeah. versus tourist yes, count yes. every year because yeah. and the bison always win it oh, seems yeah. like like the numbers are always like thirty to one they always but, get their way but you know the, no you get out and you chase that bison <laughs> off the road that's the appropriate thing to do yes <laughs> oh that's funny but rattlesnakes are much easier to move than a bison. So that's what, you know, we usually, um, you know, the first thing you do is, you, you know, you try to go out there and, and let it move on itself um, because we try to the least amount possible to move or disturb the wildlife because the National Park Service, we're, we're, we're a unique, we have a unique mission. You know, we have a dual mandate. Um, we're a preservation agency that has to, you know, we must preserve all of our natural and cultural resources um, unimpaired for future generations, but dually we have to provide access to those resources to the public as much as possible. Um, that's a tough mission because yes. <laughs> you're, you're balancing visitor use with protecting the resources. So like in that scenario, you got a rattlesnake, which is a part of a natural resource. And then you have public use if they're in a high public use area. Um, you know, your first instinct, you know, shouldn't be to go out and move the rattlesnake and put it somewhere else. You know, it's to be there to, to warn folks, hey, there's a rattlesnake here. I'm giving it some time to move on. And then, you know, if for some reason it doesn't want to move on, then we'll grab one of the snake hooks and move it off the side of the trail. So it's like, that's the same thing with the bison is you'll get, you, you know, you serve as a safety officer, you know, go out and keep people safe, but let the wildlife and, you know, let them do their thing to, you know, we're a team in that scenario. And how many rattlesnakes a year do you move off the path? It, it just depends, you know, um, Quarai doesn't see that many. Um, it saw a few last year, which some of the longtime staff here said that they, they've went like over 
10 years without seeing a rattlesnake at Quare Eyes. So that's pretty interesting. Um, but a Grand Kivira and a bow, you'll see them, uh, a bow especially, pretty often. Um, but they, they usually, they, they won't mess with you, especially if they're, not, uh, if they're off the trail. In fact, you probably walk right past one without rattling because, you know, they, they don't want to make themselves known if they don't have to. They're not um, an aggressive snake. No, they are not. They are very, they, if they do anything, it's a defensive action. Um, you know, you could walk right past them and they won't rattle or make any noise. But, you know, of course, if you're walking towards them with a stick or something, you know, that you're not supposed to be doing, then then they they will defend themselves if they have to. So usually they're pretty, um, there's a lot more aggressive snake breeds across the nation out than rattlesnakes. They kind of get a bad reputation. Now, do you find, just as another curiosity um, point, that the rattlesnakes are going along their, their happy way and they hit that nice warm pavement because you've got really yeah. nice trails that are that are yeah. uh, wheelchair accessible and stuff. Do they have a tendency to go, oh, hey, I kind of like this warm spot and want to stay there? They do sometimes, but I'll tell you, you know, with having like red sandstone ruins and, uh -huh. and that, it, they have a lot of places that they feel that. Okay. So sometimes, you know, you'll see, I see them a lot of the bow in the resettlement structures, which are the small, smaller structures you see on the way into the site. Okay. Um, I've seen snakes in there quite a bit. Um, so they, they have a lot of places to do that. And then, of course, once you get in the heat of summer, they won't be out there because that's actually, that's way too hot for them um, because they can't, you know, regulate their body temperature. Right. So if they're on a hot path that's, you know, a dark, deep red uh, and it's 80 degrees, you know, their blood is feeling, you know, well over 100 degrees um, and it'll start to literally boil. So, you know, you'll see them in shaded areas a lot in the summertime, too. Um, so this time of year, you do need to be cognizant because if it's above ground temperature, you could see them out. And, you know, you could see them sunning themselves on a, you know, 50, 60 degree day and, and getting some sun. Uh, that's plausible. Okay. Well... That's good to know. Just keep. I don't want anybody is, to not come see this stuff because there's a possibility of snakes. Oh yeah, that, that's the thing. It's just you keep your you know keep your eyes peeled and and you know be cognizant of the environment and uh, you know you everything's fine and and usually the the thing to do is if you do see a snake out that's close to the path or on the path is just go back and tell whoever's working in the visitor center, the ranger, that there's just one and location, and then we'll be out to, to assess, you know, what we need to do. Just be there as a safety officer, or if it doesn't move on, uh, just move it off the trail. So uh, that's the best word of advice if you do come across one at the park. Okay. And now let's get back to the, back to the ruins themselves, because we've, we've now gone uh, down one of our rabbit holes. That <laughs> I have a tendency to do, but, uh, what is the state of these ruins? Are they in a state of arrested decay? Are they in a state of preservation? Are they what? What exactly is is your purpose with having these on display, letting people see them, and and your preservation status with it? Yeah, we do uh, stabilization. Um, they're they're in a stable state where we're trying to preserve them the way that they are now for the future. So we do uh, rotations. There's stabilization that happens at the park itself every year. 
Um, however, it's each site gets it every three years. It's once what every you, three years. What do you mean stabilization? So basically, they'll repair the mortars um, where the stone is. You know, if um, they see part of a convento wall, let's say, is uh, is sometimes they'll they'll either buckle in an area or they'll bulge. Um, they'll you know take take the stone down, more, fix the mortar, and then put the stone back. Um, okay. So they'll do small they'll do small stabilization efforts like that. Uh, sometimes they'll just shore up the mortaring um, and and put another layer on or, or bear it down and put another layer. Um, and we it's it's a cool that we utilize this labor sources. We um, we hire pathways positions for these. And the pathways positions, uh, one of the criteria, actually the, the main criteria is that you are currently enrolled in, in uh, a college or university or um, in, in high school even. And uh, so we'll hire a lot of folks that are um, either wanting preservation as a, as a career choice when they're in college or uh, some local folks in the community that have a strong connection to the site that would like to apply. Um, we've had a lot of that. And then we even have people that are on staff today that have gotten their start um, in facilities that have gotten their start at, at uh, stabilization through that program. So it's a great program that we utilize. And then, of course, the, the ruins get stabilized, uh, you know, once every uh, three years and, and one every year. So um, it's kind of a win-win. Okay. And now what we see when we come to these ruins, as far as the tall walls and yeah. everything... That is the way that this was found, let's say, in the 1800s when it was rediscovered? For the most part. So each site's a little bit different when it comes to that. Um, Quarai, for example, it's very complete. Um, there was a little bit heavier uh, stabilization done there. So stabilization will include minor could could include minor reconstruction so at Quarai they basically had to reconnect the front facade where the choir loft uh entrance is okay. to, the, to where the old choir loft was um because that's crucial you know that was a crucial stabilizing to to keep the walls right. kind of you know in the current position um at a bow for example um early stabilization um that was done not correctly almost buckled the bottom sections of the walls this was prior to the nps this was when um it was managed by the state and unm they did earlier reconstruction or um, stabilization work and built uh kind of finished off the top of the bell tower okay and um only supported it with uh two lintels and uh it found that that wasn't enough to to hold the weight of, of the height of the tower, and uh, it started to buckle the bottom wall. So that was one thing. The one of the early stabilization efforts when the MPS took over was by shoring up the bell tower, adding two more lintels. So now today you'll see there's four lintels there. Okay. Um, and then of course that's enough to stabilize. And so there's a little. There's a lot. You know, and that is not my background, but it's very fascinating to read about that. Um, because there's some intricacies to it, you know, not only were those intricate for people to build during that time and to design, but it's hard for us today even to, to, to fathom, uh, especially not having that background to fathom how they built it and how to keep it in its current state without detracting from the, the, 
authenticity of it because that's ultimately that's why we're here and that's why it's a unit of the park service because of because of its national significance and it's and what's left is so significant right okay but now a lot of the uh pueblo buildings and that kind of stuff are still underground at yes. these sites yes and those thing to remember most of those sites too are much older um, so the missions, the way the mission system was set up is that they were centered around population centers, uh, Pecos, uh, you know, they, they, were, they were there at a Pueblo. So, you know, all of ours were, there was a Pueblo first and then there was a mission that came right, after. Right. So um, a lot of the Pueblo structures are much, much older than, than um, you know, than the Spanish structures. <clears throat> okay. And in the beginning of our discussion... You said that this is kind of, I, I'm going to use the word, a melting pot or a tradition uh, conglomeration. So you had your Pueblos from 800 to 1600 or so that were just operating with Pueblo rule, Pueblo religion, uh, native religion, whatever. And then you had your Franciscans came in. They... Explain the process of how they got the people to cooperate, to work with them, and how they, uh, how they maybe operated and uh, converted, because it seems like there's a situation where they have blended Catholicism and native uh, cultures into a religion that maybe worked to where they were able to I don't know if I want to use the word control or not, because maybe the people weren't controlled. Maybe they voluntarily uh, acquiesced and, and decided to help build these because they loved the structures or loved the uh, priests or, or whatever the case is. Uh, explain some of that tradition blending uh, mm -hmm. aspect. And, and, you know, people, the, the big thing to remember here is that the, uh, off the start is that people are very complex so this story is very complex. Um, you know, early on, uh, I always explain it that you have two cultures with two different mind frames, two different world experiences, two different, uh, you know, multiple different languages between the two of them that are coming together for the first time in history. And um, that right off the bat creates many cultural misunderstandings that leads to uh, that could lead to conflict. It could lead to um, it could lead to good things, but uh, oftentimes led to conflict. Um, initially, you know what's going on is you know we're here a little bit south of of what's going on in you know northern New Mexico and the mission system there, uh, like Acoma and uh, uh, and Pecos. Uh, so they're a bit um, they're a bit. A ways away from those folks. Uh, they have trade items from them, but as far as interaction with them, you know, different language groups and different different subsets of culture in the Pueblo world. Um, so when the Spanish first arrive here, um, you know, they're bringing certain things like, um, you know, they're bringing uh, different crops that have not been cultivated here before, like wheat um, they're bringing apple trees and cantaloupes and watermelon. They're bringing all different types of crops. They're bringing livestock here. Um, they're bringing, you know, guns. And one of the things they're bringing too um, is military around in the area, military protection. So the 
this area of New Mexico is enwrapped in, in cultural, um, like I said, cultural mixing. So you had some groups of people, um, Plains people that were uh, very, they had very good relationships with the Pueblo people and traded very well with the Pueblo people. Then you had some groups that were not. Um, the evidence shows that the Pueblo people did not have that much of a military infrastructure at these sites. Um, so one of the enticing things could have been military protection for the Pueblo people if they needed it. Um, so early on, um, with early interaction before this uh, system was in full swing, um, there was a potential for b both sides as seeing it as a um, chance of collaboration, especially from the Pueblo eyes. They may see it as an opportunity to, to trade and to learn and to, to gain some protection. And, and you know, remembering that the Pueblo uh, society is a communal type society for the most part um, and supporting each other and living together. Um, so there's many different factors of how the Spanish may have originally been welcomed into some of these areas. Um, and then once they were welcomed, you know, it's, it's um, you see the relationship kind of teeter and totter back and forth. Um, but the, uh, it's interesting because you'll read some of the primary sources from this era and they'll, they'll, the, of course, the Spanish are, are writing about the baptisms and things that were happening within these Pueblos. But this is the best example I like to use about how culture, cultures that have different world beliefs and misunderstandings, uh, how they happen is that, yeah, the, the, the Franciscans see this as, as the, the Pueblo people are being baptized and now they are members of the Catholic Church, whereas the Pueblo people may be seeing it as just a, a ceremony or, a, or a, a communal gathering or a communal ceremony, spiritual ceremony. They're not under, they may not understand what they're doing. Right. So, yeah, you may have had everybody that was baptized, but another culture that is not familiar with that type of religion may not understand what that means. Um, so now you have one side that thinks, oh, yeah, they are with us and this is what they're doing. And they see them as doing anything different as acts of defiance to another side of just preserving their way of life and trying to be communal livers with people that are moving to the area that are trading. So you have two different mind frames. And then, of course, in Spain's eyes, this, this territory belongs to the Spanish crown. Right. You know, in, in the European style of government, the, you know, they have land rights. In the Pueblo mine, you know, they've lived here for centuries, way longer than the Spanish have been in this region. Their, their ancestors have, have migrated to the area and have been transient through the area for, for generations. So in their minds, they're, they're very connected to the land. Um, you know, they, they live with the land and utilize the land. And it's their home. So you have two way different ideas. And, you know, that and that varies in the Pueblo world, too. You know, the Pueblo people are incredibly diverse to where you have multiple different language groups. You know, right here you have Tompiro and Tiwa that are two different language groups within 15 miles of each other here. Wow. But you also have people that speak Tiwa <laughs> at Coronado where you were at, right. that, was a, that was a Tiwa Pueblo. And you also have Tiwa way up in Taos. And today you have Tiwa in Isleta, in El Paso. 
So you have language groups that travel everywhere. And then here was mainly Tampiro. And then there was, they were considered Eastern Tampiro at Granquivira. And then there was Piro and Socorro that might have been an accent. So you have all these diverse Pueblo peoples that have different, uh, different spiritual ceremonies and different worldviews and ideas. And, and uh, you know, but we, uh, for, for time's sake, we, 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 uh, we just mention them all as Pueblo people because they share similar, um, similar building styles, similar ways of life to each other. Um, but that just adds to the complexity of the story, you know. So, you know, really it's not so cut and dry of, um, you know, wh what was the story? Was it a positive connotation? Was it a negative connotation? Was it neutral? It varied. When times were lean, this this whole area was struggling to survive. Um, from 1667 to 1668, or from 1667 to 1672, there, there was a sustained drought period to where you saw in 1668, 450 people die at Gran Quivira of starvation um, because there wasn't enough water to cultivate crops in the local area. So when times are tough like that, you do what you have to do to survive. So that's also when you see a big breakdown in the mission system. Um, you see... Uh, the, the fall of some of the, the missions, you see um, the, the uh, abode, uh, you see the Franciscans being forced out by the Tompiro um, by the burning of the Convento in 1672, which, remember, is eight years prior to the outbreak of the Pueblo Revolt. Um, you also see, um, on the other side of the spectrum, Quarai. When Quarai was um, abandoned, um, you see a migration of the the Tiwa people and the Franciscans together to another mission in Tijique. Um, and at Gran Quivira, you see a little bit of a mystery. You see um, some up upticks and some attacks that happened, uh, mainly resource-based attacks, trying to survive from plains groups that were, were uh, you know, primarily trading with the Pueblo people prior to this. But like I said, when times are tough, um, you need to do what you have to do to survive. Um, so you see sort of a scattering of people after some, some hus like hostility in the area. Um, and uh, a little bit less is known about Gran Quivira's uh, fall. So it's a very complex story that is, is very based on circumstance. Uh, it's based on um, relationships of individuals with other individuals um, and you see highs and lows in the different periods of, of the, the site here um, but I, I think it just it just adds to the to the complexity and, and interesting story that and the have. mystery yeah and and that's a big thing too in in, in the um, in the, the history there's a lot of mystery engulfed in it because a lot of it happened a long time ago, um, you know, there, there's other other sites. Uh, my background is in actually political history, uh, mainly prior to the Civil War. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of source material on that. There's a lot less source material on this, um, you know. And we basically go a lot by archaeology. Archaeology is really king out here in the Southwest, um, and also by um, listening to um, the Pueblo people that remain here today and the tribal groups that are here today and hearing their perspectives on the story 
um, which is always my, my favorite thing to do because it, it, it always factors into the way I interpret the resource um, because they have their stories and, and they are still today, you know, practicing some of the same things they did historically and some of the same traditions that they had. And they're still moving forward today and wanting to, uh, you know, they're still around and they're still uh, doing amazing things within their communities. So they're, they're great to hear about uh, and to, to work with. Now, did the Franciscans keep really good records? I know that for the most part, the Catholic mm -hmm. Church kept good records of everything yeah. that they did in the places that they were. When they left these uh, missions, did those records go to a central clearinghouse, so to speak? They they and, really did. Yeah, they they we got we have uh, source material on really niche things, specific things like. Uh, amounts of supplies they got when they started missions, you know, like how many nails they got, how many chickens they got. You know, we have that. Um, and uh, we have, uh, you know, certain um, stories that were written by uh, journals of settlers that were in the area, too. Okay. Um, because, uh, you know, you see, you start to see Estancia farms pop up around the area. And, uh, you know, they, they write uh, stories about what's happening in the, in the area. Um, so we do have some records about uh, and about store, uh, um, uh, storage of some of the excess and surplus uh, crops. What about like everyday life? Just everyday? D daily life's a, a little bit fewer and far between. Um, we do know like some of the courses. Uh, so the, one of the functions in the, in the Convento was to serve as an education space for uh, Pueblo children. And we do know some of the courses that were taught in there, like um, we know there was a, a choir class, there was a Spanish and Latin class, um, there was a, uh, um, there was probably a spiritual class. Um, so we do know some of that. Um, we know what the individual rooms in the in the convento were used for. We know roughly the sizes they were building. So we do have some records. Um, most of those, I believe, are actually housed in in either Spain or Mexico. They're not. Okay. They don't belong to like the U.S. government. So do you um, have access to them to where you can read them, or or are they pretty much locked up a, in a? A lot of the primary source things, I don't think we do. But luckily, we've had multiple resource studies that were written on the site. So one of the first things that happens when basically any park is in, is entered into the, the National Park Service is that there's a series of studies that, that are done on the site. And a lot of them you'll see, you'll see historic, if it's a, especially if it's like a, a historic home or something, you'll see a historic structures report, a cultural resource study, you'll see cultural landscape reports and inventories done. Um, so our, our biggest one here, we have a historic resource study, um, and uh, that referenced quite a bit of primary source documentation that um, you just can't find um, that, that had to actually take special visits. And most of those actually are done out of a higher office. Uh, they're done out of either a regional or a Washington office. They'll send the, the Park Service. We have historians that, that uh, that's their function. Okay. Or, and we have like main archaeology offices that that's their function. So um, that's how we get most of our, um, that's where we get most of our information. And that's where we get most of our interpretation, uh, you know, between that and the, and the voices of the people that are, that are here. Um, 
is, is how we craft most of our interpretation. Uh, the one thing that really kind of struck me as interesting is kind of going back to the blending of traditions is at these sites, at least two of them, uh, GQ I'm not so sure about because it didn't strike me there, but uh, the other two sites, you have the uh, mission building, and inside of the mission building, they have what appear to be kivas, mm -hmm. which are religious uh, centers for the Puebloan people. Mm -hmm. And they were right inside of the church to where they almost had to have been blending their religion somehow or another. And then the other thing that I noticed that was interesting was you had one placard that talked about in the 1600s, they had organs and other musical type instruments inside of the, the uh, missions, mm -hmm. which is just mind boggling to me. Where in the world did the organ come from? Yeah, they, they um, a lot of that stuff, a lot of that stuff traveled. Uh, so that's another thing that kind of makes a bow uh, an important area is that um, they would use basically the route of, of US 60 as a path back to the Camino Real, Okay. which basically runs where you, uh, where Route 25 is today along the Rio, uh, the Rio Grande River. And um, that was a major trail, major trading yes, trail. And, and that was, that was so there was a three-year supply uh, train of, of wagons that came up from Mexico City to supply the missions. Um, and it came up through Las Cruces. Yeah. Through we, we went to a couple of other uh, military sites that yeah. were along the Camino Rio. Mm -hmm. And they come all the way on up from... Mexico, uh, Mexico City, yeah. through Las Cruces and on up into Albuquerque. Yeah, that's basically the route of the Camino Real. Um, and they actually, so the mission uh, system was based out of Santo Domingo, and they would they would take the the supply trains up to the up to Santo Domingo, and they would split. Um, they would send a group of them uh, out west to supply the, the Pueblos and missions out, you know, towards Acoma and out west towards Grants today. Um, and then they would send uh, one that would continue north to supply northern Pueblos and missions. And then they would send one to the east um, towards Galisteo. And then we believe that was the one that came down south to supply this mission here. Um, and then it basically would run today... Uh, along the Salt Missions Trail, which is r roughly where 337 runs and, and down through Tijeras Canyon, because you had a series of pueblos there. You had, you know, uh, Tahike, uh, you had Chilali, um, and towns that are still there today. Um, and you, you also had missions there that they supplied. And then, of course, Corai, which is along that route. And then it's uh, believed to be that they made sort of a loop and went to a bow and then dropped a bunch of supplies off at a bow, uh, especially because the archaeology shows there were large, larger storage places, at a, spaces at a bow than some of the other places, um, and then dump supplies off there that would then be distributed amongst the missions to the south, so Gran Quivira, and, and uh, there was a large Pueblo at Tabira and Tenebo, um, and then they would continue basically through a bow pass where Route 60 is back to the Camino Real. But the kicker is they had they had to go back to Santo Domingo prior to going back to Mexico City. 
If I was them, I would have said, you guys can pick me up at Bernardo, which is the <laughs> town present day there, and then pick us up on the way there. But um, uh, the Route 60, where it is today through a boat pass, that the, the road that was through there, um, many people commented on how nice of a road it was. Um, Lieutenant Abert of the Topographical Engineers of the United States, who was through here in the 1846, in 1846 uh, mentioned what a fine road it was, and Carlton of the U.S. Cavalry in 1853, when he's coming through the area, um, actually said it was the, something along the lines of the finest road in the in the territory that he's seen um, was the road that is uh, running through a bow pass. So it's it shows that it was a well manicured road uh, even prior to you know prior to its paved state now. So it was an established road. Um, now Carlton. Is the one that rediscovered these in the 1800s? Is that right? No. Okay, I thought I read that on one of the plaques. No, there. that's that's not no. Um, there were resettlers here uh, way before that. Um, so actually, the first resettlement, major resettlement era in the park was 1800 uh, at Quarai, okay. and uh, a little bit later at Abo in 1815. Um, those two lasted till about 1830. Um, and then you see another brief period uh, at Quarai. People were back at Quarai in the late 1830s, early 1840s. Um, and then a bow, you don't see people return permanently again until uh, the late 1860s. Um, and it was actually a, a group of, of hunters that came through the area. They were bison hunting. Okay. And uh, they actually... Uh, came by a bow and uh, they had had family that was lived there in the early resettlement period. And uh, so they decided to give it another go. They came back another couple years later and, and uh, that same family is still living in that area. And oh, still, really? Still own all around the park. Wow. Uh, the, yep. And they, they actually, uh, their, um, it would have been their family member, whether it was grandpa, dad, um, Frederico was he was actually the first park ranger when it became a national and park. And he's buried on site. Yes, he is the grave you will see on site today. Um and actually all that was his property. He uh, sold most of it to the state and then actually donated a little stretch of it when they were doing archaeology and found that lots of the church was still on his land. It was wow. much larger than they thought at first. Um and he donated the rest of it uh, and he was a very passionate man that cared uh, very deeply and had such a strong connection, as did many people to, to Abo and to the area. So, yeah, uh, that's what Abo is, is super significant in that regard, too, that it was a major drop-off point for these supplies, and it was a, an easy way back to the Camino Real coming from, you know, the east and, and from, you know, from the south. Can you imagine being back in the early 1800s, 1700s, riding your horse out looking for maybe a vein of gold or running away from some hostile natives when you're doing your fur trapping and all of a sudden coming upon one of these structures just as you top a hill? It'd have to be just absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, it, the whole concept of what the hell is this? <laughs> and then yeah. walking around through the mazes trying to, it, 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 the whole idea just is, is, has my mind spinning. <laughs> you think of it, it's funny too, because it's, um, it, it's funny because like you re, you 
not necessarily rediscover, but you come across uh, these structures, uh, you know, from time to time when you're you're in a new area for the first time. And today, you kind of have that same feeling of rediscovery of, of oh, finding you do. things. You know, you uh, especially moving here from another area that so everything's a new discovery. Um, so uh, to you, it's just amazing. But then you start thinking back to the people that created this and the people that first came here and the people that, uh, you know, knew the land like the back of their hand and you, you get a whole nother appreciation for right. the site. And, and that's even, you know, you're going back to the Pueblo people that, that, uh, amazingly survived in an area that's almost seems unsurvivable that Definitely. thrived. Yeah. They thrived in this area and still thrive today is just, it's incredible. Makes you wonder if there's been a climate change in the last 600 years. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I didn't just say that. <laughs> you know, and, and back to back to the discovery thing. We were pulling into Guevara, mm -hmm. and uh, did I say that right? Uh, talk no. about Grand Kibera no, or Karai? No. Karai. Uh -huh. Okay. Yep. See, there we go. And it could be any of them. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> but as we're pulling into there, we're, we're driving in around uh, the way the road comes in, mm -hmm. and Linda says, I don't even see it. This here must not really be one. Mm -hmm. And you had this little tiny window that, and I says, no, it's there. Yeah. It, it's amazingly it's there. there. Yeah. Yeah. And she's going, where? I don't see it. I says, you'll see it soon enough. We get out of the truck and I walk her back and it's, it's there. It's almost like you just rediscovered because there's nothing. You see nothing until you get into that parking lot and you have just that one little window where you see the, the mission. And and it's like an elephant in the wow. room. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. huge. Yeah, it's and Quarai especially because it's just it's a massive structure. Uh -huh. Oh, it I, is. They're uh, all massive. And the sun hits Quarai very depending on what time of day you're there in just amazing that's angles, beautiful. and it just oh, yeah. glows. And the colors are wonderful. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I can't even imagine it with the with the white wash on the oh, outside. Yeah. That had to have been just like see it for miles and, and just majestic. Yeah. Just, yeah. So how long have you been working here at this particular site? Uh, here, not entirely long, about, uh, about a year and a half or so. Um, you've really got a lot of knowledge about what's going on. I, oh, I'm I impressed. I'm impressed with your, uh, <laughs> recall and your, and your research. Yeah, well, it's, it's, you know, uh, I we all do, but I personally find it uh, as uh, to do justice to people that were here and uh, to tell the story in the most, not only the most accurate way, but to convey all the the specialties and and the the, the triumphs and the 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 ups and the downs and the sadness and the happiness and there's so much behind the story, but to tell that in an accurate way. You know, you have to you have to do due diligence and research and talk to people, um, and uh, you know, just basically that's what we are as interpreters, right? As interpretive uh, rangers, we're we're here to um, tell the story and and bring the story alive of the people that are responsible for those cultural resources, um, and to be able to do that, it's it takes a lot of effort and research and. Uh, you know, consideration of sources and, you know, and, and uh, sometimes reading things that are hard to read and you wonder how people uh, 
could sometimes do the things that they do. Um, or, and then, and then you start thinking of perspectives and time periods and motives and, um, you know, misguided views and, and, uh, and, you know, it's, it just, it's a rabbit hole sometimes, oh, um, sure. but it's, it's, it's amazingly fascinating to, to study. And you said you had one of these in particular that was your favorite when we were talking on the phone. Yeah, I, I always, I love them all. But uh, a, a bow has a special place in my heart. Um, just, uh, it was one of the first sites that I worked at when I came here. And um, the mountains in the background just struck me. And then once I started reading about the story, um, and the Tompiro people are fascinating people. Um, a language group that, is, that very few words are known still of the Tompiro people. Um, and, uh, you know, still I've had the opportunity to talk to people that have descended upon, uh, from the Tompiro people that ranged in the area. Um, a very special group of people. Um, and, uh, to learn about the culture and, uh, and to see the, the pottery left behind that they've produced and, um, just the sheer amount of people that belong to that language group, uh, they were, they were known here, that's for sure. And and today they're left behind, um, not only with their ancestors, but uh, or with their you know descendants. But the ancestors are their their voices are still here. They're they're here in the wind. They're here in the rain. You know, you, you still they're still here. That is yeah. awesome. Okay, one more question, yeah. and we'll close this thing out. When we were walking through, I think a bow, mm-hmm. you had. Uh, Placard that talked about a turin that was built. Ah, is that at a bow? Yeah, that was at Quarai. That was so, at Quarai. Yeah. Okay, and the turin it says was built in the 1800s. Yes, and so that was built on that site uh, well after everything else had had been deteriorated and everything else. So, was there a group of people that were living there at the time? So Quarai had, and let's explain a turin real quick. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so we pronounce it Torreon. Okay, um, Torreon. That's like the more the Spanish pronunciation. There's actually a town of Torreon too. Okay. Which oddly enough, I don't think there's a Torreon there still. But anyway, Torreon, there is one in Lincoln. As you yeah, drive there is. Lincoln. Yeah, there is. And, right and in the middle we, of town. We we, we talked about yeah. that one when we had uh, our <laughs> podcast there, which I had never heard of before. Yeah, it's right. And in it's town. cool, but yeah, yeah, Torreon. It's basically a defensive watchtower. Um, so one of the advantages of, of here is that you have, uh, you know, the mountains and then kind of foothills below the mountains and then flat land. So if, you, if you're on the foothills, situated in the foothills like Quarai is, um, if you build tall, um, any length, you know, maybe you know, 15, 20 feet up in the air, you're going to be able to see for miles. So that was the main primary purpose of the Torreon was as a defensive central hub because you'll see there's some... There's some foundations that are sort of, if you're walking down the path, it's kind of to the right of the church and to right. the right of the convento. That was a separate wing of the convento that was built as the kind of city center of the resettlement era. And the Torreon was the heart of that. Um, so that whole area had been built in the 1800s. Yeah, that bottom the... part, yes. Okay. And actually some of the... Because con- it still looks like it's part of, it does. The, of the... And that's, that's by design because actually some of the, the convento has, had been 
modified for resettlement. So that's the, the one uh, factor at Quarai is that there was heavier resettlement there. Okay. And there was also modifications done by resettlers to the convento, i.e. widening walls or doorways and, you know, making some of the area, some of the convento areas as uh, an actual living space. Um, so we did see more modification in that time, because a lot was left of Quarai for a long period of time, Quarai um, okay. was very well preserved for for uh, you know for about a couple hundred years, um, and uh, you know time after that had not been too kind to Quarai, but the convento was largely intact for quite a while, so it was able to be salvaged for resettlers. At a bow is a different story. They built separate structures, as you saw, as you can still see right. today. And Grand Kivir, the same. There was resettlement there. Not, you can't see any of those structures left. They're not there. Um, but they built uh, largely separate. So Quarai, they kind of just added on is, okay. is an easy way to describe that. And that was, like I mentioned, there were only uh, brief periods of inhabitation at Quarai once you hit the 1800s. Okay. From 1677 until, you know, roughly 1800, you don't see permanent residency there. Um, most groups had migrated on. Um, but uh, once you hit 1800, there's, it's inhabited uh, pretty frequently. Okay. And that's who, so when the topographical engineers came in the area, which a lot of folks don't know about them, they actually came in 1846, just prior to the outbreak of the of the uh, Mexican-American War, so technically they were they were probably trespassing on on Mexican territory at that. But their purpose was to um, basically map out this area of New Mexico in preparation for the war. Um, but they were also um, taking an account of what they saw. So they visited these sites because they heard about them, and uh, they visited Quarai and Lieutenant Abert, a second lieutenant. He painted a watercolor of Quarai, painted a watercolor of a bow, and actually did a sketch of Quarai as well. Really? And those are the first artist renditions that we have of the sites that was done by Lieutenant Abert. Are those the ones that are that are uh, on the placards? Uh, I believe, yeah. I believe okay. we do have them on there. Yeah, the, the um, and we have them hanging in the visitor centers. Um, so yeah, the first artist renditions of the park were done by a second lieutenant. Cool. Um, and uh, he wrote a journal um, and in his journal, he, he mentioned about the settler resettlers at uh, at uh, Quarai were the ones that took him to a bow because there was nobody currently residing at a bow. Okay. Um, which we knew that, but uh, that just kind of confirms that. Um, and then when Carlton comes back, you know, we most of our waysides are centered ar around Carlton for military wise that are coming in the area, which. Which that's one thing I would like to change. I'd love a wayside about Lieutenant Abear because it, um, he was mainly an exploratory mission that came through here. Just to, to be, he was like that first one that that took measurements of the sites to okay. see what was left. Um, so he did some important work, preservation wise, that uh, we can use even today in this in the resource study. It mentions what his measurements were, what Carlton's measurements were, and then what Bandelier's measurements were. And then, you know, everybody that came through and took measurements. So then you can kind of track, you know, the degradation from that time year to year. Like, oh, a lot of Quarai is missing or the wall is a lot shorter this year than it was that year. So, uh, so they didn't know it, but 
they did some uh, important work for preservation, you know, wow. which could be a positive that comes from the, the exploratory missions out here, one of the few that you might pull. Um, but yeah. So, cool. yeah, so they, they I, I love Abert's watercolors. They are, um, you know, he, the topographical engineers were, they were all officers. Um, they were a branch of the army engineers. Um, they were responsible for doing things like, um, surveying for lighthouses and for bridges and canals and basically did the highly technical work that the army engineers needed highly trained officers for. They usually did that type of work. And that's the same thing out here. They sent them because they wanted they wanted a detailed account of missions and ruins and and um, you know structures and, and topography and, and water. And they needed to send highly trained troops. So they were all basically all West Pointers that came out here. And and actually, funny Lieutenant A. Baird, his dad was in charge. Uh, uh, Colonel William A. Baird, um, which you may have heard of the A. Baird squirrel or the tassel-eared squirrel. Um, it's named after uh, Colonel A. Baird, and the A. Baird's toey is named after um, uh, Lieutenant A. Baird. So. How would you like to be known as a squirrel? Yes. <laughs> what a legacy. What a legacy. <laughs> that squirrel's named yeah. after me. I wonder See what there? they were thinking. Yeah. See there? That's, that's me. Right. Right. <clears throat> okay, well... You guys have a website particular yeah. to this site. Yeah, yeah. We um, so our website it's uh, NPS as in National Park Service dot gov backslash SAPU, and that's going to be your central hub to find uh, park information. Our hours, um, you know, right now we're still on winter hours. Okay. Um, so like all the sites, the trails and the restrooms are open from nine a.m. through four p.m. and the the gates close at four as well. Um, and then the visitor centers are open Thursday through Monday, 9 a.m. through 4 p.m. And, of course, the rest of the site. But we'll be switching to summer hours here uh, starting in May. Um, and then we'll switch 9 to 5 daily, um, both the trails, restrooms, and then also the visitor centers. So we'll be switching to that in May. Um, but, uh, yeah, and we also, you know, this is about our busy season we'll be getting into here pretty soon, um, you know, school group season, um, which we, we encourage, especially fourth grade groups to come out because we do offer the Every Kid Outdoors free pass for fourth okay. graders. Um, and then, of course, uh, we do offer the free, um, both the annual and the military passes to, to uh, the annual military passes and then the lifetime military passes uh, free of charge to, to veterans and active duty military. Um, and then, of course, we're fee free. So, you know, we, we don't charge an entrance fee to the site. So you're welcome to come and visit. Um, Isn't that amazing? You can come yeah. here, spend the day. If you're in New Mexico, if yeah. you're not in New Mexico, make it a point to come here yes. and spend the day. And you can do it for free. Yeah. What a, what a deal. Yeah, that, that's the word I use to describe New Mexico is, is diverse. So you could come to New Mexico, and whether you want mountains, you want you know you want desert, you want uh, you know Pueblo culture, you want uh, Hispanic and Latino culture, whatever type of culture you want is here. Whatever landscape you want is here, and really whatever weather you want is going to be yeah. here too. So, New Mexico, yes. New Mexico is awesome. We yes. love New Mexico. In fact, I think right now we have more podcasts in New Mexico 
than any other state. But we've been here for over a month in New Mexico. Uh, we're, we're on our way home, kind of, uh, somehow or another. But uh, we've spent a lot of time here. We've really, really enjoyed it. But uh, I always finish out my podcasts by saying the world is full of wonder. People need to get out and explore. If you haven't seen some of the ruins in this country, you need to get out and see them. And I would highly encourage, especially these particular ruins. They are, I've been to probably 50, 60 different sites. These are by far and away my favorites, including the big, well-known ones. And everybody have an absolutely wonder-filled day. All the road and go, where am I to go? Meet Johnny, where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go? Thank you.